this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode the killing of two persons inside polish territory on november 15th by a missile strike had the world on edge till it became known that the likely culprit was a ukrainian and not a russian missile a flurry of meetings took place and statements flew thick and fast us president joe biden convened an emergency meeting of like-minded western nations on the sidelines of the g20 bali summit as nato and western statements suggested that it was a ukrainian air defense missile that may have landed in poland tensions eased but dangers lurk ahead as the russia ukraine confrontation looks to go on and on to focus on some of these issues i am joined by ranjan mathai former indian foreign secretary welcome to the in focus podcast mr mathai um yes and happy to be here thank you for having me mr mathai the world may have escaped an immediate escalation but what's the risk now of more countries being drawn into the russia ukraine war Well I'd like to start with something you just referred to about the flurry of meetings and so on and uh, yes your conclusion that the world escaped escalation after the killing of these two people but I think very very soon after the incident the facts began to emerge which didn't fit the pattern of escalation the attack on 15th night was about 6 kilometers inside Poland a farm was hit a granary two people died not an obvious military target or an infrastructure target uh, by which i mean the supply routes from nato and the west into ukraine via poland so the polish obviously inspected it and it seemed to them more likely to be an russian s300 rocket and they believe this based on the kind of crater it formed and the impact and so on but they were not sure where this came from and they said they would consider the kind of consultations which nato has under article 4 of nato that is only consider article 4 itself is a formal call for discussions which would have taken place as you said with mr biden and everybody else but even the nato chief he said it was a likely ukrainian anti missile one simple fact this s300 has a range of 100 kilometers at most russia is 580 kilometers away from the point where it impacted and even belarus is 120 kilometers so the possibility is that it was a case of misfiring after all such things happen in the war you might recall that in march a drone flew 1500 kilometers across three countries and hit croatia it had ukrainian colors but to this day no one has fully explained what exactly happened so in conclusion yes escalation is possible but in this case there was no real alarm but the risk of more countries being drawn in is the question you are posing as a fallout of this and i think that remains quite high because as i see it both sides are not really fully exhausted and therefore ready to settle at least according to the pub information in the public domain but coming as, as it is now the risk remains just as high as earlier 
when one side or the other had the upper hand. So the possibility to tilt negotiations in favor of one side or the other is what might draw other countries in. And there are danger signals. From my analysis on the Russian side, the possibility of Belarus joining. It can help with interdiction of Western supplies, but it is unlikely to take that risk. On the US side, it is quite serious. And I'm saying US because the US is leading the NATO on this. The US today has 100,000 troops deployed in Europe, a large number in Poland. But the most serious, and this has gone slightly under the radar, is the deployment of the 101 Air Assault Division. This is the legendary 101 Airborne Division, which is one of their most crack units. It is being deployed in this area for the first time in decades. Secondly, in the month of June, I have still not understood it because it has not been publicly debated. The US moved to what is called DEFCON 3, Defense Condition 3, which is, you know, it's last happened during Yom Kippur War and 1976 in Korea. They've had it for situations within the US. But outside, this seems to be the first time. And what this means is above normal readiness with the US Air Force ready to deploy in 15 minutes. So one doesn't know what the meaning of all this is. Are they just signals? But as you started the question, the risk of other countries getting drawn in remains high unless there are negotiations. And what, what about negotiations, uh, Mr. Mathai? You know, you, you've been a diplomat for decades and, you know, uh, India and Pakistan have always been lectured on the need for dialogue, for de-escalation. You know, all these lectures we've heard from Western countries and the Russians, of course. But today it seems that you know, they, they've abandoned all rationality and the rest of the world is basically being subjected to Russian whims and fancies and Ukrainian whims and fancies. And I would add the US whims and fancies. But yes, you're right. The West and even Russia has, as the Soviet Union in the past, have lectured India and Pakistan. But they did so because they are in a position to do so because they can pressure you, influence you, affect your finances, affect your weapon supplies. Nobody can pressure the US or Russia today, who are the real protagonists in this conflict. If the Russian missile had been uh, far more serious, I think you know the global pressure would have built up to do something uh, about it. But I don't see that the rest of the world is in a position to influence, pressure, or even morally impress upon either Russia or the US or the Ukraine in that order to really bring this to a negotiated settlement. This has to be decided by these three players. So, so what you're saying, Mr. Mathai, is that in a sense, this battle is now a full-scale one between the U.S. and Russia. Would, would, would that be your understanding? Yeah, that is my understanding. 
And what happens now? I mean, you said, uh, you know, you in your initial comments, you said that, you know, neither side uh, feels it's exhausted enough to come uh, to the negotiating table. So how is this going to play out? Because, you know, the impact on energy supplies, the impact on global shipping, the impact on the global economy, on supply chains, every country is affected by what's going on. So how does this play out in your view? I think, you know, today we are literally in the midst of what is called the fog of war. There's no clear information coming out. It appears like the situation on the battlefield has reached a stalemate with both sides somewhat exhausted. The US, as I see it, is making one last effort at boosting the funds and weapons supply uh, flowing into Ukraine. Uh, before January, when the new Congress takes um, comes into play in the in Washington, and which at which time more questions might be starting to be asked, there are still a large number of hawks who want the war to go on till Russia is defeated. But even the Pentagon chief, General Milley, has now been quoted as saying that negotiations must start, and his chief, Lloyd Austin also said NATO will not be draw, dragged into a war, uh, the first war in Europe since World War II, unless Moscow attacks a member. So the US will stand by Ukraine, as it says, but I don't see that they really want to escalate this and uh, play it out till Russia actually collapses. The UK, which was the other player, is playing along with the US, but today it is much weaker. On the Russian side, the impression one gets is that Russia needs time for its newly mobilized forces to become real fighting forces before launching an offensive. And it seems to be banking on the winter to do two things. One, to improve their position on the battlefield and second, to break EU unity. And along with it, the unity so far shown between the US and the EU. This is not impossible. Germany has already started giving warning signs against escalation. And therefore, I see that negotiations could start. Now, as far as Ukraine is concerned, it has done enough to claim victory. Retaking all the territories it has lost will require far more US and NATO support than now seems likely in the next year. It may still happen, but I said it is less likely now. They can hold their territories which they have gained. They might even be able to gain a little more in the Donbass, but I do not think they can hope to take, retake Crimea. That is a bridge too far. So on the whole, I think the winter war will decide how this will end. It is still wide open because hawks are still flying in the air in Washington, Moscow and Kiev. But the realities on the ground are beginning to suggest that a negotiated solution is the way out. Mr. Mathai, we've also seen a wave of Russian missile strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure, uh, including uh, their power grid. What is your sense? Uh, do you think the Russians are changing tactics after, you know, suffering what some say are losses on the battlefield? 
Yes, I do see that because they believe that uh, attacking the most obvious military target, which is the supply lines coming from the West into uh, Ukraine, uh, carries higher and higher risks because one never knows with these very long-range missiles where they will hit. And if they hit on the other side of the border, as you just restarted, that could trigger a real crisis. So what they are doing now is making it more and more difficult for the Ukrainians to be able to move their forces, the energy supplies need, needed to sustain them, as well as probably on the third, not quite break the morale, but increase divisions within the Ukrainian um, political system about the need to settle this one way or the other. And Mr. Vadaim, what is your sense? I mean, uh, you know, uh, the war, the, what the Russians call the special military operation began uh, in February. And uh, we've seen uh, that uh, the Ukrainians have held out. And as you pointed out earlier, they have, uh, they have regained considerable territory as well. So how do, you, uh, how do you see the Russian game plan? I mean, this, the objectives that they seemingly set for themselves, do you think they're, they're anywhere near those objectives? Or have they taken a beating and are they are reconsidering their options? I don't think they've taken a beating, but they have not succeeded in their objectives. They have been able to make some gains in the Donbass and by declaring the annexation of these areas, if the war ends with a negotiated solution, leaving an as-is-where-is kind of situation, they may not have done too badly. But they have come out of this, I believe, much weaker than when they went in. Their military prowess has proved to be less than it is. And they are now finding it difficult even to resupply their forces on the an adequate scale. I mean, the volume of military uh, shells and equipment and ammunition being sucked into this war on a daily basis is really very, very draining. Both sides feel it, but I think Russia certainly does feel it. For Ukraine, I think the question now is to be realistic look for a solution which gives them the maximum they can gain uh, without trying to press on further, which could lead to uh, serious difficulties for them. Mr. Vathai, how, uh, you know, as a former Indian Foreign Secretary, how do you see India sandwiched between Russia and its new ally, uh, the United States? How do you think, what is your assessment? How has India played the diplomatic game so far? I think India has played the diplomatic game with considerable skill so far. And uh, we have maintained lines of communication with all parties to the conflict uh, fairly robustly and fairly effectively defending the Indian national interest. We have an interest in this war coming to an end as soon as possible. I believe the energy uh, problem is going to hit us very hard. Uh, we are only beginning to see it. Next year is going to be very, very tough. Food, less so for us, but for other friendly neighbors of ours. Yes, these are all kinds of issues on which we need to be vigilant. We have also, I think, in this situation, been able to retain room for maneuver uh, so that no one takes us for granted. 
And I think that has been one of the achievements of our Indian diplomacy in this. Uh, there were times when, when the war started, even threatening noises were being made about, you know, India sitting on the fence and you need to take uh, the side, uh, etc., of the West, etc. All that has calmed down a bit as realism is setting in worldwide. And so what happens now in your view? I mean, uh, you know, we've seen all this diplomacy. I also wanted to ask you, what is the role of the United Nations? Is that a system that works? Or are we just going to be simply, uh, you know, victims, the rest of the world to, as you said, uh, you know, nobody can really uh, tell the United States and Russia what to do? Well, you see, the UN system can work if there is agreement in the UN. It can try to separate the warring parties and install peacekeeping forces or whatever. But in this present situation, the UN carries no weight. I repeat, no weight. Because the veto-wielding UN Security Council members are protagonists to the conflict. And only UN Security Council resolutions are binding. Even what is called the Unite for Peace resolution, which brings together the global community in the General Assembly, these resolutions are non-binding. So they had a UPR and they were able to carry it. But as you can see, it has had no effect whatsoever. I asked you a little while ago about India. I now wanted to turn uh, to China, uh, Mr. Mathai. How do you see the Chinese position on uh, the Russia-Ukraine war? I think the Chinese have been very, very cautious and rightly so. Uh, initially, there was a strong suspicion that they had been briefed in advance and they were very strongly on Russia's side. I think they have dispelled some of those notions to an extent. But if you look at their public statements and their position, they are still positioning themselves as calling for an end to the conflict and particularly calling for the West to stop uh, further uh, fueling of the conflict, as it were. So in effect, they are, I would say, on the whole, on the Russian side, but in a very a relatively modest way, uh, keeping their options uh, open and keeping their lines of communication with the US uh, again still secure. Uh, it is interesting that much of this is in the last month or so when a new degree of, shall I say, realism seems to be entering both US and China in their own relationship. So I think the Chinese uh, do feel that a negotiated solution must come. Uh, I think they believe that a serious failure or setback to Russia is not in their interest because they see this as the United States plan for Eurasia, for domination of Eurasia. And if Russia is weakened too much, they are the next. So I think they would like to see a balance of power retained in which Russia remains a factor. And they would like to see an end to the conflict because it is causing serious damage to their own uh, economy, the export opportunities for global economy, energy prices, uncertainties about food, uh, confusion in Central Asia, and so on. So I think that is where they stand. 
So, Mr. Mehta, I'm going to ask you um, uh, what might be a slightly unfair question, but I'm going to still ask you. What do you think would have happened had that missile that fell into Poland if it was actually a Russian missile? Well, you know, uh, if it was really a Russian missile, uh, I think two things would have happened. First of all, on the ground, first it would have been a lo much longer range rocket. There would have been a much bigger blast and I think a military or infrastructure target would have been chosen, not something innocuous like a granary uh, with food. It would have, once it hit and the Poles declared it and announced that they believed it was Russian, it would have triggered NATO response uh, under Article 4 of immediate consultations. And if they were convinced that this was an attack on a military installation, they would have gone from Article 4 to Article 5, which means get ready for collective defense. They are themselves threatened. Unless the Russians claimed it was a mistake and, you know, tried to back off. I, think, I believe very, very serious escalation would have been on the cards and the United States may have warned Russia. And the warning in this kind of a situation the first signal would have been they would have moved from DEFCON 3 to DEFCON 2. The only time they have done that was during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Uh, they have not faced a similar situation. They have done it internally within their own country at the beginning of the 1991 war, but that was just you know guarding for homeland security and so on. But if they were to tell the Russians that we are moving up, the scale of defense readiness, and DEFCON 2 is very, very serious, by the way. It can mean at six hours notice, everything you have is ready to go. So I believe that would have been a very, very serious crisis. And I don't think the Russians would have risked it. And, and what is your sense on the Russian, uh, you know, nuclear threats in a sense, saying that we will use all weapons at our disposal? Do you think that the world, uh, you know, in if there was an escalation, would have been at risk of a nuclear exchange? Well, yes, if there were a genuine uh, risk of uh, nuclear war, then it would be an exchange. It, it, it doesn't always end with only one side. Uh, carrying it out, at least not since 1945. The risk is always there. The Ukrainians, if they, backed by the West, succeed in breaking Russian lines and forcing them out of the Donbass, this is, a, this is this kind of scene, scenario in which the Russians have said they might use tactical nuclear weapons. I am not so sure. They, they, they will try to rectify the military balance. But I believe there is one situation in which one should not underestimate the Russian willingness to use nuclear, and that is Crimea. Crimea is different. Crimea or Crimea is substantially different from the rest of Donbass. The Russians firmly believe, and most people in Crimea firmly believe, that it is historically Russia, should be Russia. If they go for that, and you know, there is this Crimea platform which was created and in October of uh, 2021, even before the war started, they had declared the decision that they must liberate Crimea. And even in October 2022, the parliamentarians of this platform met. Nancy Pelosi, the hawk, went there and made a speech and so on. 
I believe that kind of a situation could trigger a nuclear uh, exchange. The other much less likely is if Ukraine falters and then its internal systems begin to collapse and if then Russia decides to press its advantage beyond and actually try to break up Ukraine or its strategy, which some people believe is to then draw in Poland, Romania, etc. to pick up pieces of uh, Ukraine, I don't think NATO will stand idly by. At that point, the Russians will be delivered a threat that uh, the, the response is going to be very, very severe. As it is, you know what uh, uh, General Petraeus has said, that even a tactical nuclear weapon used, even say in Crimea, will evoke a U.S. response which will be unprecedented. He did not describe it. I think he perhaps did not need to describe it. And we have one third scenario, but that is conspiracy, which I don't buy. And that is that if Ukraine uh, uses a weapon of mass destruction, they don't have the capacity for nuclear or chemical. There is some conspiracy theory about bioweapon labs, but I discount all that. So I would rule that out. I would say only under the first two circumstances, there is a possibility that uh, we could move up the escalation ladder to a risk. Right now, I don't see that as very high. Mr. Ranjan Mathai, former Indian Foreign Secretary, thank you very much for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.